Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Glad that you're here as we continue in our preaching series on the meaning of Christ's death on the cross and how that's going to lead us up to really celebrate his resurrection in a few weeks on Easter Sunday. Let me begin this morning by reading the Bible passage for today from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. You can use your own Bible or follow along with the words on the screen. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, and through God we are making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of God to us today. Let's uh, open our ears and really hear what God might want to say to each one of us. Amen. WWJD. Do you know what that stands for? If you do, say it with me. What would Jesus do? It's a phrase that was popular a few years ago, and for a while, I mean, it was everywhere. It was on wrist bracelets and t-shirts and and every kind of paraphernalia you could possibly imagine. I had a staff scavenger hunt on Thursday because I said, we've got to have something with with the letters WWJD on it somewhere in this church. And Jeannie Ross won. She found this buried in her uh, office somewhere in the preschool. So uh, we actually do have some memorabilia from the WWJD. It was supposed to be a reminder for us as Christians to think about how Jesus would respond in situations that we're facing, to look to Jesus as our example, our role model, to think about what Jesus would do so that we could figure out what we're supposed to do. Nothing wrong with that. Following Jesus' example on how to live life, I mean, that's a very good thing. There's no better role model out there than Jesus. But like all cutesy slogans, its popularity eventually faded and it kind of went out of vogue. But that phrase, what would Jesus do, actually can help us to understand something pretty important this morning. It can help us to understand sort of the main division that exists in the way people think about who Jesus really is and his relevance to your life and to mine today. And especially can help us to understand the meaning and the value uh, when people talk about the meaning and the value of the death of Christ. And the word we use to describe the meaning of Christ's death is the word atonement. Or if you break it down, at one How do we connect to God? What has to take place for us to become at one with God? In the scripture passage I just read, the Apostle Paul describes this at one as a reconciliation, a, a healing, a bringing together of God and humanity, a, a healing of something that was broken. So what role does the crucifixion of Christ play in making that reconciliation, that, that at one what role does the crucifixion play in making that happen? That's what we're going to look at today. And sort of all boils down to this. Which of the following two questions is the most important one? 
Which of these two questions should get the most emphasis? Which one should be printed in big, bold letters and underlined, while the other one should be in much smaller print? Here are the two questions. What would Jesus do, or what has Jesus done? Which of those two questions a person picks as the most important one actually says a lot about what that person believes about Jesus and the atonement. Let me explain it this way. In the last 50 years, the big push away from orthodox, biblical-based Christianity has to come from people people who really like Jesus. I mean, they really do. They like Jesus as an example. They like to talk about him. They like to use his name. They like a lot of the things that he taught uh, that are recorded for us in the New Testament. Not everything, but, but a lot of it. They like his teachings on love, his concern for the poor, his harsh words for the greedy and those who might oppress others, his openness to the outcasts of society, uh, the sense of acceptance for, for all people. They love the idea of unconditional grace. They love that. They'll sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, as loudly as anybody. And yet, as I'll mention later, they don't really understand what the word grace actually means. But they do like Jesus, and they would promote Jesus to the world as the most excellent role model for anyone to follow for personal or social transformation, for personal or political liberation. Uh, This kind of enthusiasm for Jesus as our prime example fits perfectly in with our kind of increasingly self-centered, kind of therapeutic, feel-good, semi-mystical culture. You know, what's most important is your personal growth, discovering your self-worth and actualizing all of your own inner potential, and then you sprinkle some mystical, spiritual-sounding vocabulary on top of all that, and you're ready to go. Sort of a God-helps-those-who-help-themselves attitude where Jesus becomes the prime example of personal empowerment. He's our companion on the journey to discover our own sense of divinity. And he's a motivator and a cheerleader <clears throat> excuse me, towards social justice. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me here. You, sh- you should think about what Jesus would do. You should look to Jesus as your primary role model in life. He is a great example, but for these folks, that's all he is. And by focusing in on Jesus, our example, in many cases, they minimize or completely do away with even thinking about Jesus, our Savior. Why? Because they don't think we really need saving. They don't believe we need a Savior in the biblical sense. There's really nothing that much wrong with us. No moral separation from God. No sin with a capital S I talked about last week. Nothing that deserves God's judgment or, God forbid, hell. I mean, separation from the presence of God. Those are just the archaic views of ignorant fundamentalists. No, we're basically okay. All we need is a little bit of a spiritual tune-up and we're good to go. We're not that far off, and God understands anyway, and he just gives us a pass. It's, it's no big problem. You see, folks who look to Jesus only as an example really don't have the big view of God that I've been talking about for the last few weeks. They, they don't believe in this creator God who is, who is holy, who has a moral nature that defines good and evil for the entire universe. They don't believe that we live in rebellion against our creator God. They don't believe that there's such a thing called sin that separates us from God. 
And especially they don't believe that there's a God who actually judges sin as being worthy of punishment or destruction. No, God is love and that's all God is. So the idea of Jesus dying on the cross for our sin is foreign to them. It's sort of antithetical to their thinking. They don't believe we need salvation in that way. We're okay the way we are. They don't believe we need this cosmic forgiveness from God. We just need to change the social and the political climate and kind of restricts or inhibits our free self-expression. The real purpose of Christianity, therefore, is to change oppressive systems that keep people down. And though they might use traditional words of faith like redemption and salvation and repentance and even atonement, the meanings have all changed. When they see Jesus on the cross, they see his death primarily as Jesus the martyr. Jesus, the guy who stood up for the little guy, the liberator who confronted the evil systems of his day and was sacrificed unjustly to the oppressive political machine. They'll even talk about how the biblical view of of Jesus dying on the cross to take away the penalty of sin, that that really amounts to divine child abuse. They see the whole idea of Jesus dying in our place as a, as a violent theology concocted by the early church leaders who were really nothing more than patriarchal misogynists trying to hold on to their power. And these folks are the pastors and the priests of many of our churches and the professors at many of our colleges and seminaries. I think many people in the pews would be shocked to discover what their pastors really believe and what's actually being taught at their church's seminaries. The prime example of this way of thinking about Jesus came to light at a gathering called the Reimagining Conference. Uh, It's a conference way back in 1993, but it caused quite a fallout because it was partially sponsored by some of the more radical women's groups within a number of mainline denominations like our own, the United Methodist, the Lutheran Church, and the United Church of Christ. And besides doing things like wanting to replace Holy Communion with sort of this New Age ritual of milk and honey, uh, the speakers completely bashed the, the biblical teaching about the death of Christ. And probably the most infamous statement was made by the Reverend Dolores Williams, who teaches very close to us down in New York City at the Union Theological Seminary, who said this, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. And her statement was met with enthusiastic applause. We don't need a savior hanging on a cross. Now imagine that coming from a seminary professor. You see, it doesn't bother me what people outside the church think or say about Jesus. They don't claim to know him, so you can't expect them to get it right. But when people who claim to be Christian kind of spew this kind of nonsense, it gets under my skin. I mean, people are free to believe and think and say whatever they want. I'm 100% in favor of that. But I just wish they had the intellectual integrity to admit that they are not Christian. And what they are teaching has nothing to do with the Jesus of history that we know through scriptures. They can say and teach whatever they want. But just be honest enough to admit that what they are not, what they are teaching is not Christian. But they won't, because they like the cover that they get by being associated with Christ's church. And so they are false teachers. False teachers. False teachers in the church is nothing new. 
The New Testament was written partially to refute and kind of counteract the false teachers that were popping up all over the place in the first century. I mentioned a few weeks ago uh, some of the false teachings about Christ, that, uh, about his, his death and his, and his incarnation. And Jesus himself warned against all these false teachers and false prophets and even false messiahs. He said they would be hunting the edges of the church like wolves, trying to mislead as many people as possible. Read Mark chapter 13 for that. So it's nothing new. So that in every generation of believers, we have to think deeply and clearly about what we believe because there will always be false teachers. And in our post-Christian age, false teaching has become almost mainstream in many quarters. So bear with me for just a couple minutes as I try to express what is really the inexpressible, the meaning of the atonement of Christ, our creator God is a being of infinite goodness and power and light. He is a holy God. And God is also a God who loves what he has created. And it is at the cross where God's holiness and God's love meet together through the sacrificial death of Jesus. We must see our condition from God's point of view. A holy God confronted by systemic and pervasive sin. The Bible explains carefully that the human condition is serious indeed. We could live our lives as reasonably happy people. We can get things reasonably well organized. We can get ourselves into a relatively comfortable situation and never actually feel that our situation is all that serious. And yet the human condition before God is really drastic. If we are to take what the scriptures say seriously, we have to come to terms that our human predicament is extreme. And Paul says it very plainly, very clearly, very simply. Romans chapter 3. Read the whole chapter, but verse 23 says, For all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. That's it. That's all of us. Every single human being. We all have a sin nature that's fundamentally at odds with God. And that's the root of the problem. Now that there's this theological phrase for this condition, that I'm going to use this morning that you're probably not going to like. The theological phrase is total depravity. Total depravity. It's not a biblical term, but it comes to us from the history of Protestant theology, and it's an accurate one provided that we understand it correctly. Generally, people have a very strong negative reaction to this phrase, total depravity, because they think it means we're saying people are you know, just slobbering degenerates or totally rotten, completely despicable, utterly slimy, thoroughly depraved, without any redeeming qualities whatsoever. And if that's what total depravity means, I would be repulsed by it too. But that's not what it means. Dr. J.I. Packer had the greatest, simplest definition of total depravity. Listen to this. Total depravity means not that at every point you are as bad as you could be, but that at no point are are you as good as you should be. Let me say that again. Total depravity means not that at every point you are as bad as you could be, but that at no point are you as good as you should be. That's human nature in a nutshell, according to the Bible. Not that at every point of your life you are as bad as you could possibly be. No. But that there is an infection that has spread through the entire human condition. 
and it damages and corrupts even our very best efforts, our most noble efforts. There is no point in our lives at which we are as good as we should be because we come up short when compared with God's goodness, when compared with God's glory. Sure, compared to each other, we can kind of you know, figure out we're better or worse than somebody else. We might go to the head of class and somebody else is failing. But the Bible tells us God doesn't grade on a curve. It's pass-fail. And no one, not even the very best that humanity has to offer, can reach the standard of perfection that is God's holiness. And one of the sad tragedies of our sinful human condition, of our total depravity, is that there is a powerlessness on our part to do anything about it. We can't repair the damage on our own. We can't make ourselves holy enough for God. We can't heal what's broken on our own. You can't pray enough prayers. You can't do enough good deeds. You can't give enough money. You can't make enough promises to change. You can't even feel badly enough about the things that you've messed up. We can't fix ourselves because the gap between our human condition And the holiness of God is not something that you and I can bridge on our own. We can't reach up far enough to reach God. But God can reach down to us. And that's exactly what he did in Jesus Christ. He did not leave us in our predicament. You know, sometimes I hear people ask, is it loving to talk about the judgment of God towards sin? And I have to answer, yes. It's the most loving message we could possibly convey. It's like, you know, who needs a doctor who's only going to tell you good news? I I know a couple of situations just in the past few weeks where people were, you know, they weren't feeling quite right. There was just news. Something wasn't quite right. They went to the doctor. The doctor said, I'm calling the paramedic right now, and you're going to the emergency room, and it saved their lives. I know of a couple situations where that happened. So we need people who tell us the honest truth. Only when we understand God's holy aversion to sin can we realize that we need to be saved from something. And only then can we comprehend the enormous love of God, the love that he has for us. Only when we understand the bad news of deserving judgment can we appreciate the good news of God coming to us through Christ Jesus, that he's provided us with full salvation and forgiveness of sin. Only those who are aware of God's judgment can be amazed by his grace. That's what I meant earlier when I mentioned the folks who love holding hands and singing the old hymn Amazing Grace and yet they have no idea about the meaning of the words that they're singing. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved what? A wretch like me. That's total depravity. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's God's rescue through Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as amazing grace without a God who judges sin. And every time you sing amazing grace, you should remember the words total depravity so that you can then be amazed by God's gracious gracious rescue through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul summarizes the meaning of the atonement with these very simple words. God made him, meaning Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. We need a Savior who is both like us and who must be unlike us. Fully human and yet sinless because a perfect sacrifice is necessary to satisfy the holiness of God. 
Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life and died this unique death, bearing our sins so that we don't have to face the judgment of God and giving to us his own righteousness. As our substitute, Jesus offers to give us the the greatest deal possible. He offers to take our sin and to give us his righteousness, his right standing before a holy God. And at the cross, this greatest exchange, uh, the cross is what makes this great exchange possible. The perfect one takes on our imperfection. The holy son takes on our sin and experiences the punishment, the banishment, the abandonment that we deserve. This is the greatest exchange in the universe. I always like to illustrate it this way because Paul began our passage by saying, therefore, anyone who is in Christ is a new person altogether. If you think of the Bible being Christ and his righteousness and the sheet kind of representing my life with all my sin written on it, I know some of you would like to read that a little bit later, but I have to disappoint you. But if you took my life, your life, it says that when you have faith in what Jesus did for us, it means we are in Christ. And so now when God looks at me, what does he see? Because I'm in Christ, he no longer sees my sin. He sees the righteousness, the rightness, the holiness of Christ. And that's how the exchange happens. I am in Christ, and now I'm a new person altogether. And Jesus says, let's get busy on that sheet of paper. But before God, you are now right at one with him. It's not that I'm now perfect, but my life is hidden in Christ. And so the Apostle Paul is so emphatic and he's pleading, be reconciled to God. After all that you've heard about the holiness and the love of God, all that he went through to reach you, to to save you, to forgive you, he's done his part. But your part, my part, is to respond to him. When you know something's not quite right and you can't fix it on your own, be reconciled to God. A response of the heart, a a surrender, an acceptance of God's diagnosis of the problem. That you and I, we are deathly ill apart from Christ and we cannot cure ourselves. But God can through Jesus. Be reconciled to God. To live in daily thankfulness. A daily turning to God. A daily turning over your life for him and living for him. Experiencing that at one moment with God that Christ provides through his sacrifice. Daily knowing that being Christ-centered means being cross-centered. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that this is the heart of the gospel. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might have the righteousness, the rightness, the at one with God. And for some, Lord, this might be the most important message they've ever heard today. Maybe they've been coming to church for a very long time and it's never really made much sense, but maybe today something clicked and there was an awareness that said, you know, something's not right in me and I can't fix it by myself. I need the love of the divine physician to tell me the bad news so that then I can appreciate the really, really good news that God loves me. And he's done everything possible to save me through Jesus Christ. 
And Lord, would you work in their heart and help them to turn to you now. And just in the simplicity and quietness of their own heart to say, thank you. I want to live for you. I want to be at one with you through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.